0: Hello, my name is Kate Leppard, and I'm Head of Client Service at Casanova Capital and Schroeder's Wealth Management. Welcome to our podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by James Heal, journalist and diary editor of The Spectator. James, together with a friend, Harry Cole, who's political editor of The Sun, spent the summer co-authoring Out of the Blue, The Rise and Rapid Fall of Liz Trust. James good morning and thank you for talking to us today.
1: Thank you very much Kate.
0: Having spent the weekend reading your book which I thoroughly enjoyed I've been trying to work out if it was spectacularly badly timed or actually sheer brilliance in writing <laughs> a book this summer. Have you been surprised by the reaction you've had to it?
1: <laughs> um, I think we've felt both feelings at different times of the summer, Kate. Um, We started writing it August the 20th, which was a fortnight before uh, she became Prime Minister. And at that time, we felt like she would be uh, Prime Minister for the next two years, like a lot of the Conservative Party at the time. Um, And I think around the time of the mini budget, things all started to go badly wrong. But even before that, we'd had the biggest energy bailout in British market peacetime history. We'd had the death of the monarch. So it was already shaping up to be quite an extraordinary book, her first month or so in power. Um, and then around the time of the conference, we thought, oh, my God, this is going to end badly. And thankfully, I mean, it all ended before we had the print deadline and managed to turn it around. So we've um, tried to make the best of a bad situation, I
0: think. James, reading your book, um, Liz struck me as somebody who was either liked or vilified. Very much a Marmite character. Um, clearly, Dominic Cumming loathed her. I mean, there's no other way of putting it and called her a human hand grenade. And she had a very unfortunate sort of public speaking style as well, which seemed to follow her around, not least her, her pork and cheese speech when she was at the Department of um, DEFRA, I think it is, Farm of Agriculture. But she did have a mixed track record, but there's Some notable successes when she was, I'm thinking, you know, when she was Minister of Justice, which was a really rough ride where she did get extra funding from a department which has been cut over so many years in terms of its budget. And then when she became Foreign Secretary, um, she was successful with the Iranian hostages, Nazarene Zaghari Radcliffe and Anoush Ashuri. She had success perhaps where some other ministers didn't. What would you put that down to?
1: I think that you summed it up perfectly, which is that she was a Marmite character, and often it was those things which her detractors disliked, which made her um, so admired by her fans, which were that she was someone who was always saw themselves as anti establishment, who wanted to shoot from the hip, who knew what they wanted, was quite, bel- quite determined, um, perhaps a little. Violent um and that meant she had a kind of determination to get things done when she became prime minister there was a maybe a criticism that that was her view was too narrow of everything that was going on but at a time in a departmental brief it means she could secure her aims as you say she got more funding for the ministry of justice uh a foreign office she was seen as having done a good job which is of course why she became prime minister let's not forget and i think perhaps her Uh, Best achievement in recent years is something that we're only just learning and finding out about, which is calling for the declassification of intelligence in the situation regarding Ukraine and Russia. This was obviously very important in December, January, when Russia was trying to um, create a sort of proxy to go to war on and say that um, the Ukrainians were massing on the border, etc. And by declassifying this intelligence, a world first, by the way, against some what some people in Whitehall were pushing up against, uh, it enabled... Um, The narrative to go out there that showed that Russia actually has been planning this for a long time and that they were the aggressors rather than the Ukrainians. So for all those things, you know, she had um, she won plaudits for those achievements. And also, whether you agree with it or not, the way she got the Australia, New Zealand free trade deal through cabinet uh, shows that she learned something. She does learn from her briefs and that she she, the, the kind of perhaps naive um, minister of the early 2010s had sort of matured into a more all-round politician who knew the ways to get through the Whitehall jungle.
0: And do you think the sort of prolonged leadership battle between her and Rishi, I mean it got very personal, it was very blue on blue, Labour didn't have to do much by way of opposition because they were doing it all for themselves. Do you think that put her on the back foot in terms of becoming Prime Minister right at the outset?
1: I think that it was an extraordinarily bitter race, much more so than the one we saw uh, later this year in October. Um, and I think that was because it, it, was, it was really a battle for the Tory party's soul and what kind of direction he wanted to go in. Um, I think that it wasn't so much in terms of the attacks, it was more the timing which is that as this race went on from early July into early September, the country's economic fortunes worsened, the picture got worse. And I think that a lot of the country despaired as they saw these hustings going on. And that's why I am somewhat sceptical as to whether we will ever see a governing party conducting a leadership contest in this way again. And of course, October's contest was very much a reaction to that. And we ended up not even having a membership ballot. As a consequence of that, because of what happened in the summer, so it did put her in the, in the back foot in the sense of having the worsening public finances and a kind of sense of exhaustion by the time she entered Downing Street.
0: Yeah, we'll come on to the October leadership question in a moment. Um, I mean, I suppose that the, the most obvious question next is what went wrong? Um, you know, disruptor in chief, supreme self confidence, hubris, or was she just surrounded by the wrong people? I mean, clearly the Queen died right at the beginning of her premiership. I mean, it was two days in. What 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 happened? Or was it already unraveling and and the period of national mourning, that sort of void, just accelerated the inevitable? So I think the simple question is she tried to do too much too
1: fast. She was going around according to people we spoke to, saying, you yeah, know, I've only got two years, I've only got two years the the situation as we understand it was in late august early uh september it was the period in cheapening where there was not much kind of push back or checks and balances of what was going on in the mini budget and then there was the morning period that followed which only kind of intensified those feelings and i think the market's were already feeling a bit jumpy about that energy price guarantee you have the era of cheap borrowing coming to an end and therefore we have borrowing dividend costs becoming an issue in public policy in a way they haven't been for for the best part of a decade. Um, and so I think that fresh off the back of that leadership contest, having gone through the period of national mourning, um, the political situation in Liz Truss's mind was very different from the economic one, which is that market volatility um, and a really quite bad negative picture in the aftermath of the aftershocks of uh, Putin's war. So um, I think they, they they absorbed the wrong lessons. They tried to go big and bold for political reasons, um, rather than at the time when the economic factors were pointing to a different conclusion. Um, and the simple fact is they tried to pull the levers at once and it blew up in their face.
0: There was a sort of a lot of talk with Kwasi Kwarteng. I mean, clearly they had had a very uh, close relationship in terms of you know, neighbours living in Greenwich. They were part of the same intake. They were politically aligned in terms of their thinking um Were they both in combination simply too inexperienced?
1: I think that they were very similar in terms of their so they entered the parliament on the same day, in terms of their outlook on the world, they worked very closely together in the free enterprise group. And I think perhaps the danger is of having such a good uh, relationship is that there wasn't enough pushback in terms of some of the ideas and they were. To an extent somewhat egging each other on. It's often said that the line between number 10 and number 11 in Downing Street is the great fault line of British politics and we all know about the past that's and that with their next door neighbour, but I think in this case by working hand in glove, and there were briefings at the time to show this by working in lockstep together, um, i do not not sure necessarily having two very strong ideologically convicted people uh, was necessarily the best way in the time of a very divided party to get that message across because they both agreed and they thought all this stuff was common sense. They didn't understand this was the right policy of Britain. They couldn't understand why it might not be the right timing or the way of implementing it or the need for perhaps softer rhetoric. So I think that it might be an extent to an experience, perhaps naivety would be a better word in terms of understanding the political realities facing the party and the country in September 2022.
0: I mean, Kwasi Kwarteng has been reported subsequently as saying, you know, I told her so, it was too much, too quickly. I think there was also perhaps an element of being a bit tone deaf in terms of particularly the 45% tax cut, which astonished everybody.
1: Yes, I think that you have to remember the backdrop that we're here, we've got here. Uh, we're entering a cost of living crisis. We're at a time when I think a majority of voters uh, want to well, I certainly don't want a smaller state necessarily, um, and I think that the danger of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng was um, imagining themselves as these great hero and heroine of Thatcherism at a time when all the fundamentals are porting to a different conclusion. Remember, of course, for instance, you know, Margaret Thatcher entered power in 1979 with a mandate and a manifesto to do all these things that she subsequently did for the country. Um, this was three years into a five-year parliament uh, where there had clearly been divides between the more blue wall, if you want to call them southern seats of the Conservatives in the south, and the red wall seats in the north and different competing demands. Um, I think it would have taken really, really astute footwork to navigate that, Um, and I think they both lacked that, which is why they ended up so spectacularly falling from power only seven weeks into office.
0: Can we turn to the party conference where we started to get U-turns and the Conservative Party factions were out in force, or so it seemed. You know, sniping from the sidelines, um, and you know, I'm not going to mention names uh, particularly, but certainly, you know, former foes, you know, were there, and it it became almost like a pantomime. It it seemed, you know, with the sort of, you know, it didn't matter which way they turned. Um, there was somebody ready to, to challenge or have a go. Um, and Michael Gove is, is an obvious candidate, so the one name I, I will mention, but who seemed to have also mentored her and you know they worked quite well at prior times in her career. But was that really the beginning of the end when they started making U-turns? Uh,
1: yes, it was the most extraordinary conference I've ever seen. Um it was rather the inverse of the traditional Labour conference, with lots of infighting, and uh, the Tory one was um, a complete mess. Whereas the, the Labour one was about men in grey suits walking around talking about business. It was a very sharp contrast. Um, but the Tories, yes, it was. It was watching you know former cabinet ministers going around openly briefing journalists um seeing Michael Gove do about a dozen events um including one where he was next door to Jacob rees and journalists in the audience were simply reading out each other's quotes to each other and they would fire back and keep this uh, perpetual row going um watching I saw, saw the 45p tax cut killed before my very eyes which was the first night of Tory conference everyone's thinking oh you know is this the bit where they bind the wounds together put on a good show and uh, went outside this uh, Tory Grande's room and saw my co-author Harry Cole having a stand-up row with a member of uh, Liz Truss's number 10 team back and forth like a game of verbal tennis um, and uh, at that point he pressed the send button and this ripple went through the room and a lot of ministers that's how they first found out the 45p tax cut had been killed uh, and so everyone sort of down their drinks one of them said um, thanks for that, you've ruined my party conference, and uh, wandered off into the night, um, and it was things like benefits, with was, was flying up, um, Penny Mordaunt made some disparaging comments about government communications, uh, I went and told that actually to a senior member of the government, and they just buried their head in their hands at that point, um, it, everyone was just glad it was over on that Wednesday, and after that, it, people were giving her months, and actually it ends up being a lot sooner than that, but it was It was an extraordinary conference where message discipline completely broke down the government of the day couldn't control what its own members were saying and party activists were telling their MPs this is going to be a disaster for us you need to get rid
0: of her. And obviously it wasn't a few weeks it turned out to be sort of days because not that long after the party conference clearly um, parliament had returned And then we had the vote of confidence, the vote of not confidence, the the fracking vote in Parliament, which seemed to fall to pieces. Nobody knew what they were doing. There were very ugly scenes within Parliament as well, and a well-respected, long-standing Conservative MP, almost in tears on the ten block news. What, What was happening?
1: Well... (laughs) <laughs> uh, effectively, this vote on fracking got elevated and was suddenly told it was going to be a vote of confidence in the government itself. It was going to be a three-line whip, and that meant that if MPs voted against it, they were effectively voting to bring down the government and by convention there would be a general election. So MPs were being dragooned into voting for the end of the ban on fracking in England and Wales. But at the last moment at the dispatch box, uh, Graham Stewart gets a message which says that Uh, Actually, it's not going to be a vote of confidence. Uh, And the reason for that is because uh, the whips weren't sure they'd have the numbers to actually put it through um, and actually vote to repeal the ban. But um, as it transpired, uh, there was a lot of confusion about what went on. Uh, The government did win that vote quite comfortably in the end. um, But there was a lot of recrimination in the the voting lobbies thereafter. There were tears. There were allegations of, of manhandling. Um, and really um, that there were calls for the chief whip Wendy Morton to go uh, and the whips office pushed back on this. We understand There were lots of threats of resignation if that went. And so at this point you have the government comms are a mess. The government whips office is threatening mutiny and order are completely broken down. As you say, uh, Sir Charles Walker went on the 10 o'clock BBC News and just was just opening up his heart. And if you think that what was said in public was bad, in private it was even worse. And that night, I think, was the night when uh, Liz Truss and Sir Graham Brady, who's the chairman of the 1922 committee, both realised the game was up and they confirmed that the following day. Um, And Liz Truss's team learnt that when they saw her getting ready to change on that uh, Thursday morning to go out and deliver that speech to say that she was going to be standing down as Prime Minister.
0: Really quite extraordinary. And then we had. Another leadership election. Um, Rishi, having been nowhere for weeks, he went off radar and actually, I think, to his credit, didn't really say anything to anybody or at least not that hit the public news. Not that I saw. Um, can he reunite the Conservatives? Is he facing an uphill battle? Certainly the financial markets are really stabilised they like the idea of the responsibility you know fiscal responsibility of rishi and and jeremy hunt or following all the budget chaos 44 days shortest ever prime minister is it is it simply too late
1: in terms of the party i think it's very very difficult uh, to see them winning another election uh, that's what history would suggest you know going for a, a fifth term um, that's what the current mood would suggest and the polls would too, with a, a Labour um, Labour ahead by about 15 to 20 points. I think that everything that Rishi Sunak like does to an extent is a reaction to what happened with Liz Truss. So you saw this in um, the statement which Jeremy Hunt made a few weeks ago in the House of Commons under Rishi, uh, effectively confirming the death of the mini-budget when he basically talked about how respected Andrew Bailey was, how great a job he was doing as a Bank of England governor. Uh, And that was very much the antithesis of the Liz Truss quasi quartang view of the world, which is that these institutions have failed over the past decade and that new leadership was needed. So that, in terms of reassuring the markets, is very much a break with the past of Liz Truss's um, agenda. Also, things like the Whip's office. Um, You saw this with the planning rebellion last week um, and the Bob Seeley-Theresa Villiers amendment and the way in which the Rishi Sunak government, Climb down and affect a kind of compromise. I imagine if Liz Truss and people like Simon Clark were still in government, they would have fought that and they would have divided their party still further. So it's a much more emotional tone, a much more uh, conciliatory one. And I think that Richard Zack, to some extent, has, it would be to be too modest to say this himself, but he's to some extent won the argument in the sense that a, a certain wing of the party put themselves behind the Liz Truss um, bandwagon and trustonomics and obviously that completely imploded and therefore there is no alternative would be what some of Sunak allies would be saying and that they've kind of just got to band together to get to the next election and hopefully lose by only a one term margin rather than a two term or three term margin as they did in 1997.
0: And I was very struck reading your book and looking back through history and as you say you know the Conservative Party first with the coalition and then subsequently in elections you know going for that that next term and how reminiscent maybe it was of the final years of the thatcher major regime and even let's face it you know the blair brown era too and that the team maybe and the party is simply exhausted and needs a refresh i think that they need a
1: mission you need a narrative to tell the voters and in 2010 to 15 you had that with the austerity balancing the books uh, Boris promised in 2019 to get Brexit done and then levelling up. And I think people are now asking. Rishi Zenaik has steadied the ship and they have basic managerial competence where the markets aren't treating us like third world debt. OK, that's fine. That's great. Now what comes next? And we've still got 18 months of a parliament to go. Um, and I'm not sure what kind of the narrative or mission is going to be as part of this. I think you're right that all governments towards the end there's a cumulative effect, sleaze catches up with them, they look tired, the opposition has upped their game, Uh, and so there are certain echoes of that. What I would also add, of course, is that Liz Truss did join the Tory party in 1996, it's close to its lowest ebb, so who knows, perhaps the next Conservative Prime Minister, Dr Sinak is currently right now um, the part, joining the, signing the Forbes join the party at its lowest they ready to buy shares at the bottom of the market for when um, <laughs> a blue chip brand does restore in value but uh, you're right there are definitely echoes of the past and that's why I think there are very few people outside perhaps of Rishi Sunak's closest friends and um, the Labour Party uh, who think that the Tories will win the next election You know.
0: Can we just talk a little bit about the, the Labour Party and mm-hmm. You know the really big shift that we have seen in their messaging and their focus under Keir Starmer. Clearly, you've got Angela Rayner, who's still a bit of a firebrand, um, but they've changed a lot. Also, they appear to have done on, on the face of it. But I've got a sort of grudging admiration actually for what they've achieved and some of their spokesmen who actually. You know, if I think about the Labour revolt, and particularly more recently under Jeremy Corbyn, actually don't sound desperately like, you know, Mm -hmm. Labour. They've really Uh, moved to the centre ground.
1: Yes, and in uh, the shadow uh, Treasury opposition, uh, the shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, you have a former Bank of England economist who was very much um, ostracised during the Jeremy Corbyn years and didn't serve under him on the front bench. So there's been a very sharp contrast. Um, I saw this firsthand uh, with the tale of two conferences, where, as I say, the Tory one was a disaster, and a Labour, you had business lobbyists praising them and saying how receptive they were uh, and open to discussing, certainly. I think they really have stepped up in their game in Labour and the opposition, um, and that's why that now, for the first time at the time of the mini budget, polls showed that people now expect. A Labour government. They've been, Labour have been ahead in the polls for a year in terms of preferred government, but now there's an expectation that Labour will be the next power party in government. Um, and I think you see this in Rachel Reed's very astute positioning. It's notable how she doesn't actually disagree with that many of the Tory policies at the time they were announced. She didn't, for instance, criticise many of the measures in the mini-budget other than the top rate of tax uh, and the banker's bonus levy. Uh, and you see this in this holding line that Labour currently have, which is that, oh yes, they would go after non-doms. Well, that would raise about three billion or something like that. Um, you know, the removing the charity status of, of private schools would get a couple more billion. But ultimately, these summed up to about 10 billion, which is given the current the British economic picture is actually not that much but it's a useful way of assuring the markets that they're actually not that different and wouldn't do anything crazy and I think what the Truss experiment has helped is kind of bolster Labour's competence by relative comparison uh, when you look at what the Tories have been up to so Labour have talked a very good game they've stepped up to their comms um, and their outreach to the city has been much much improved than the Jeremy Corbyn years of just three years ago.
0: It's, it's extraordinary to think it is only three years. And when I, I think almost when I look at whoever had been in government over the last few years, if you take the pandemic and just as we are emerging from the pandemic, you then had Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, it was going to be a very hard job for anybody. Uh, let's face it, uh, when you're looking at, you know, and, and they they appear the, the sort of conservatives and the Labour Party, Through COVID and through the early time of the um, invasion of Ukraine, actually were working almost quite well together.
1: Yes, and now, of course, it's picking up the tab for that. Um, As you say, as you sort of look, I mean, the key difference between now and 1997, which a lot of Labour people are talking about, is that the British economy is in nowhere near as a healthy state as it was at that time. I think there was a a mood shift perhaps in COVID. Um, This is what I, I mean about the polling suggests that the British public, I mean, that's different from the British Conservative Party, but the British public don't want a a smaller state necessarily. And I think that because of the way in which the state stepped in during COVID with furlough, um, it was quite an ambitious thing to embark on an explicitly small state agenda um, at a time, as I say, when the markets are very shifty and, and the government is very dependent on those markets because I think borrowing costs went up by £8 billion in a day. I mean, that's, that's, almost I think you know the international that's more than the international aid budget which we spend each year um, so it, it it was quite difficult where you have had these global factors and I think in recent years the government has really been reminded of their own power relative to those things like Covid um, and the, the, the energy price caps and I think we're age, entering now perhaps an age where security issues things such as you know uh, having your own energy supply having your own supply chains are going to be much more relevant in the minds of voters when casting those votes than they have been for the 30 previous years of an era of globalization so the list trust experiment and the kind of things we're discussing are very much the sort of flashpoints and microcosms of bigger issues to come
0: yeah and we we would certainly agree with that when we're looking at our economic outlook we're investing very globally for our clients uh, we have seen you know the impact of weak sterling in client portfolios um, you know the cost of debt, you know has risen exponentially in terms of what the government need to face um and that has pros and cons for investors you know savers who get very little support at the moment um has started to benefit at long last but it adds to the cost of living crisis with with you no know, 1.3 million people on variable rate mortgages or short dated mortgages all of whom were trying to um, shelter themselves from the, you know, the rising cost of, of energy, and suddenly their mortgages were doubling, tripling, or even even more. Um, but you're right; it's all around energy security, um, supply chain security, you know, onshoring back from you know manufacturing centres, which was more COVID-driven, to you know, and reliance on places like China. So we have seen a huge uh, shift in, in in the public's expectations as well. And I think back in the day, you know, maybe a lot of the public didn't really uh, mind too much where their energy came from or where their goods came from. And I think that's very different today. And I think it's a new challenge for government.
1: Yes, I quite agree. And of um, the, the course, the danger is that you need to have a state which which is state which is able to do those things. Um, and I think that a lot of the assumptions of British policymaking haven't really taken you know, the need for slack for extra capacity into account, uh, which is why we've seen you know, the Army, for instance, deployed 85 times this year on various things to make up for the public sector shortfall. Um, you're right in terms of the global picture. Um, and I think that the tragedy is with say, you know, um, you know, Liz Trust perhaps is that she she was very astute on something like China but uh, in terms of the kind of need to reorganize certain assumptions in Whitehall about that, But I think at the same time the the haste in which she did certain things meant that the short to medium term was compromised on that Um, but these are all factors that are going to be of of huge concern in the 2020s and 2030s and both parties are going to have to take account of that in terms of where do they find the money for this and are we going to have an honest debate about uh, spending versus tax cuts versus growth Uh, Liz Truss's assessment was that we needed economic growth I think that's, that's, that's inarguable but how do you get there in the short to medium term to provide that long-term growth and at the moment there's a lot of talk about it but in terms of cross-party consensus we mentioned the kind of consensus on COVID a second ago there doesn't seem to be too much of it Uh, and planning is an obvious example of that Um, so I think perhaps the case for, for Liz Truss will be interesting to see is whether her thesis gets revisited in the years to come. Um, or whether it gets completely discredited as we debate these things about the nature of the size of the state and the global economy uh, throughout the next decade or so.
0: Liz Truss was Prime Minister for 44 days. yet she was centre stage for one of the UK's most historic events. The Queen died two days into her premiership. There she is making a speech outside 10 Downing Street She was giving one of the readings at the Queen's funeral. She'll be ever present. And what really struck me was the last Remembrance Sunday. And there she was at the Cenotaph. She's only 47, maybe 48. She can be there probably for another 30 years. And will people be asking, who is that in a few years' time? Or will she bounce back again?
1: That's a very good question. Who was Liz Truss? Bit of an enigma, I think, even to some of her parliamentary colleagues. Uh, I think that in terms of her immediate plans, uh, she went on her first holiday when she wasn't a government minister ten years, uh, just after she left office uh, in October. She's just come, come back to the UK. She's already actually just already gone out and done um, a tour of uh, American institutes like the Cato Institute, free market things. And I think that basically offers a kind of model for what she'll try to be. Uh, As I understand it, she will fight her seat at the next election, which is a very Tory safe seat. One of the ones you'd expect it to retain, even in the event of a landslide. Uh, And so I think she will be around the parliament, probably championing her ideas. And I think there's a certain caucus of the party which um, is already saying perhaps, well, you know, we've got the alternative now, got the thin gruel of Rishinomics, if you want to call it that, Liz Truss wasn't completely wrong in terms of her analysis, Uh, and so I can maybe see some kind of um, role in which she champions a certain wing of the party, or even perhaps makes her come back on the front bench as a spokesperson for certain issues. You know, on foreign affairs, perhaps she was seen by a party certainly to be in the mainstream on those things. So I think in the short short term, it'll be about kind of cutting over the shock. I think a lot of people around her are still digesting what happened. It was a very high pressure and turbulent time. Uh, and then longer term, finding some kind of post-premiership career. But as you say, she will always be an ex-prime minister, even if she's earning the job for seven weeks.
0: I've also got to ask you about Boris Johnston. Um, <laughs> I was driving my car to the garage uh, during the October leadership battle when there was a great debate about whether Boris would run against Rishi. I actually missed my turning. Um, will he make a comeback? Trichilian come back in say five years' time. I can certainly see it happening.
1: I think that for now, and I know I said this at the beginning of the interview, this party really does think it's going to be with Rishi Sunak for the next two years, um, and so I, I'm not sure that they can see any come back before the next election. But what I would say is that um, after that, who knows? Of course, they've got two big insurmountable. Um, potentially insurmountable objects, which are, one of which is the Privileges Committee, into whether he lied at Parliament or party gate. If you can get through that and say, well, I never knowingly lied, or words to that effect, then, of course, that opens him up to stand again. And the second thing is, can he keep his seat in the next election? Oxbridge south right Lip, on current trends, it's set to go Labour. Uh, if they can maybe find a seat or something like that. Then there can be a way for him to come back in some capacity. What I would say is that he's done three speeches thus far and made seven hundred fifty thousand pounds from it. So I'm sure he's in no great hurry to go back to the relative penury of modern politics. Uh, at the same time, he's um, paying for as much wallpaper as he wants. But uh, you know, he's uh, he,
0: he's
1: sense. he's doing a fair amount of the after dinner uh, set at the moment, and. Um, He's already signed an amendment on the levelling up bill with Liz Truss uh, against which uh, forced Rishi revolts. so I think he's happy causing a bit of mischief and then um, we will see what happens in a few years time if he stays in parliament.
0: James what should we expect in 2023 in terms of UK politics as you see it?
1: I think it's a shift in the old words of Tony Benn from personalities to issues. We got very used in 2022 to these great personality-shaping debates through Prime Ministers. Um, I think in next year will be much more about kind of the issues of imperceptible, insurmountable forces, things to do with markets, energy, uh, capacity, the economy, Uh, and going back to those kind of debates. I think both Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are quite managerial politicians, quite sober-minded themselves, and I think that they will both try and go back and forth on technical issues that are in their control about bigger um, macroeconomic, macroeconomic um, forces. So I'm sure it'll be, I mean, there can't be much more turbulence than this year, I hope, for all our sanity, um, have four prime ministers perhaps, but my, my, my odds would be, my one prediction would be we'll have the same prime minister at the end of next year as we do at the start of it, Rishi Sunak. Um, and I think that it's a case of Rishi trying to get that Labour lead down into single figures um, and with the expectation of perhaps the wider Westminster coronetariat and the the markets that Labour will win in
0: 2024. James, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope our audience will too and um, good luck. I'm enjoying, looking forward to enjoying your your next book on whoever your your chosen victim (laughs) might be. Um, because I certainly enjoyed Out of the Blue and very many congratulations to you and Harry for writing it in extraordinary times and actually being brave enough to hit the publish button as well.
1: Thank you.